Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Today on the show, we have Alexia Stack. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty stoked to be here. Me too. So awesome. We had a pre-chat a couple of weeks back and we were just chatting a bit earlier today and we're going to be talking kind of kind of all things trauma and and ASD and kind of how that all relates and sort of just maybe just trauma in general. Uh, And we might touch in some, you know, really we could touch on, you know, almost anything because there's a lot of things sort of in our field issues, ableism and and uh and uh you know just some of our practices and we're starting to hear things from the autistic community around sort of you know uh, trauma related to even aba um and although we're not going to be focusing so much on that piece uh but uh trauma is 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 a huge uh area but strangely enough when it comes to autism there's there's not a whole a whole ton of research as I learned from reading your paper, which we're going to talk about. Uh, but before we get to that, maybe you might be able to just kind of tell us a little bit, kind of how you got into the field, and then kind of how you got how how that led you to to sort of interest in trauma. Yeah, for sure. Um, my how I got into the field story is not super exciting. I, I don't think it's like that different from many back then what we were called therapists and now we're called behavior interventionists in bc and then also uh, rbts so it's not that interesting of a story i was on my gap year between an undergrad and a graduate program and had studied general psychology um, as an undergrad student and i felt pretty done with um the lack of applicability actually of the psychology degree to real life is kind of what was doing me in a little bit i traveled around the world. I came back and I had no work. Um, Hmm. I was considering going into law actually at that time, um, really deviating away from psychology. I had, I had really burnt out. I also undergrad program. I did, I feel like drove home this hyper-focus on getting straight A's in order to get into grad school. And, um, you had to have a ton of research experience and the clinical experience was less valued and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. I was a little done with it. Um, and then I needed work. And so that state of deprivation for paying my rent and having food and (laughs) being able to do the things I enjoyed really kind of got me into the field. Um, I had friends who were working as behavior interventionists and they just said, you should come do this. You love working with kids. You're good at it. And that's kind of what I did. Like, so I started working as a BI. I had worked as a camp counselor when I was younger at the YMCA in Alberta. At an overnight camp and at day camps and stuff, and I'd coached basketball, so I had that like I loved working with kids. I always knew I loved working with kids, um, but I was really done with psychology actually when I had graduated. So, yeah, I started to work as a BI. I got hooked because it was the exact opposite of what I had experienced in school. Hmm. You could see like the direct application of a science in practice, and it produced such reinforcing results, I guess, to be working in that kind of environment. Um, and so I just continued doing it and decided to go to grad school at UBC before they were, before they had a course sequence in ABA, like a long time ago at this point. That's kind of how I got into the field. Nothing super interesting. Um, my interest in trauma though, I think there's a lot of different things here for me. If I look back at it, um, I think that in some ways I've come back full circle to where I started when I left high school. 
I, in high school, was really interested in psychology and I studied everything relating to schizophrenia and what was once called multiple personality disorder and is now called dissociative identity disorder. So I was really interested in that. Um, In high school, I did presentations on it. I took a, I don't remember an elective in high school in grade 11 or 12 on like some psychology class that was so poorly taught, but I loved it regardless. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I even learned anything, but I was like, this is awesome. I'm studying psychology in high school and that's pretty cool. So um, and those kind of the the mental illnesses that I was really interested in, schizophrenia and uh, dissociative identity disorder um, are pretty interconnected to trauma. So if I look back to when I was pretty young at the time, 16, 17 years old, I think I already had kind of a, an interest in it back then. And I didn't really know where it was stemming from or coming from, but I was into it. And I also worked in a attachment lab at SFU hmm. for a couple of years under Dr. Kim Bartholomew, hmm. who is a highly well-known, highly regarded um, attachment researcher from Stanford originally, and then she came up to SFU and taught there. So I worked in her lab for a couple of years and did some scoring and some pretty interesting work there. Uh, So yeah, those are kind of the connections through my schooling and stuff. I also, I guess, have some, I mean, anybody who's going to be interested in trauma is going to have a little bit of a personal history with it. Sure. So, you know, to touch on that really briefly, um, the family is, uh, they're World War II survivors, we're Polish Jews. So, yeah. So if you kind of can imagine anybody coming from that context, my grandmother survived the war, uh, working as a nurse with forged documents. So she pretended to be Russian and she pretended to be French, I think. And she moved kind of from army to army throughout the Second World War. And she lost her mother, her sisters. Um, she lost her first husband in the war. And so that's obviously going to kind of take a toll on a family and mm-hmm. going to leave an imprint um, across multiple generations. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was totally thinking like intergenerational trauma there. I mean, sure. we hear a lot about that with, uh, well, maybe not enough, but we hear, I hear mostly about that sort of area when it comes to sort of, you know, first nations mm-hmm. kind of related trauma and they talk a lot about the intergenerational, but I, I never even considered sort of, you know, anyone who's ever been in a war, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and how that can affect sort of the family for, for generations. Yeah. I, I definitely think and know for sure, whether you're on the, whichever side of the war you're on, I guess, you know, whether you're fighting in the war, obviously mm-hmm. back with severe PTSD symptoms in most cases. Um, and that's going to kind of carry down again, down the family lines until somebody tries to kind of break away, heal and change and stuff like that. And hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I never even thought about sort of, um, I know we talked about how this topic could totally go down so many rabbit holes. Um, but I never, I never even thought about sort of that idea that the trauma I mean, you, you experienced the trauma, but you didn't experience the event per se. And so, and so the idea when we're doing, you know, assessments and those sorts of things, and we'll probably get to that later. Um, sometimes we're looking for sort of a, a, you know, the source of the trauma or, you know, or at least was there some kind of trauma? Mm -hmm. And I would never even think to sort of ask, you know, did your grandparents experience trauma? Did your great grandparents experience trauma as a question to sort of how to sort of assess whether you're experiencing trauma? Yeah. I mean, 
even if you think about like it gets encoded genetically and I don't know a lot about the genetic encoding and how mm. it's changed as a result of trauma, but there is research that shows that DNA changes as a result of trauma in a family history and that gets passed down. But like, if you think about, for example, my grandmother and I'm kind of going on here a little bit, hmm. but she was the most loving human, but when she was upset and angry, she went from like zero to 400 without any any cue that something was suddenly going to change and that came just you know from her history it was an extreme right. level of emotional dysregulation and that extreme presentation of like i'm cool and i'm okay and everything is fine to i am yelling at the top of my lungs right now and what's happening in the environment and in the context doesn't match there's no there's no reason for such a high level of escalation right but if you really looked at her history like mm -hmm. There were just so many environmental triggers for her that, you know, as a young kid, you have no idea what is going on and why it's going on. And, and you have no clue what's happening. Right. But your grandmother totally. is like lid. And then, you know, that that's just an extreme response to trauma, that level of emotional dis dysregulation. She's probably experiencing some form of flashback in that moment, but you really can't identify it as that. Right. So yeah. that is going to for sure impact the family and, and how many families have survived different kinds of traumas, if you think about it, like our families who have come here as refugees, for example, that's going to come with a whole bunch of different stories and, um, mm -hmm. you know, setting events and histories behind that, that really are going to then affect our clients directly themselves, whether or not they themselves are experiencing trauma in any way. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, wow. So, uh, just maybe one more kind of question about family. So when did you kind of make that connection that, that, you know, that, that this is not only has this affected your life, but that it was a result of, you know, stuff that didn't even happen during your life. The, I mean, the connection to family, like the real deep understanding that their life histories had an impact on my life story yeah. um, where I could really make sense of it as an adult, for sure. Right, um, yeah. As a kid, I knew something was not okay and something was off and stuff like that, but you can't right. articulate it and you don't really make sense of it and stuff like that until gotcha. I get Wild. So, okay, so, you, you know, you, 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 you do have sort of that the typical story that I often hear mm -hmm. of how folks kind of get into the field. I, I won't get into my story for the sake of time, but I didn't go the route of the BI. And so whenever mm -hmm. I hear that, I'm like, well, that's, that's the typical story for a lot of folks. But yeah. um, did, so you're in your undergrad, did you learn, was, was there any courses on behavior analysis? Cause I often hear, uh, I think it's different for, for us in Canada, but uh, because we don't have, um, you know, as much of a history there in terms of ABA. I mean, we've got, you know, a few folks here and there. We've got some history of since Saskatchewan with, uh, you know, the, the the behavioral engineer paper there and, and some stuff that happened in Manitoba and, you know, a little bit here and there. But uh, when I often hear, you know, on, on sort of a lot of the American podcasts, the, the story will be about, you know, oh, I went to Michigan for my undergrad. And of course, you know, there was already a ton of ABA happening. And so there was an intro to ABA course and it happened to be taught by Jack Michael or whatever. And, you know, and, and they have that whole story line, but, but up here, I, you know, I, I know when I took my intro to psych, but when I took, I took a, I had a psych degree as well. And I think we had one course called learning, but I don't remember hearing anybody's name except maybe Skinner on a couple pages. So did, yeah. was there any ABA in your undergrad? No, I mean, I went to SFU and did a psychology degree there and, 
I took a course on behavior disorders of all things and mm. nothing other than the same thing, a couple pages in a textbook about Skinner, but um, the behavior disorder and treatment of behavior disorders had nothing to do with applied behavior analysis. Hmm. So no, I mean, it was yeah, interesting. Psychodynamically oriented psychology programming. Right. Right. Nothing to do with behaviorism. Right. Which is so wild because of course, you know, all that stuff was happening while you and I were, you know, even in high school and, uh, and beyond, but uh, yeah. it just didn't get sort of disseminated up here, I guess. So, yeah, so when, so you, so you kind of got that interest in trauma. Um, uh, when did that kind of intersect with, you know, the, the ABA work? Yeah. So um, I was, yeah, that's a perfect question. I think pretty early on as a behavior interventionist, like the first couple of months that I worked in the field, um, I was already alerted to some of the procedures that we were doing with those families and with those kids at the time that were highly aversive. Hmm. Um, you know, and I often reflected on the work that I was doing, compared it to what I was taught when I was working as a camp counselor and volunteering, working with kids and never, ever in a million years would anybody have ever recommended some of, you know, the things that I was being taught working as a behavior interventionist. So that was like a little bit of a kind of a probably red flag, if I think about it, you know, as to what was going on back then. Um, and then I would question what I was doing. I left some of the teams I worked with because I didn't really believe in the philosophies and the practices. Um, and I see, so I think that kind of sparked my interest, but I wasn't super aware of where that was really going to lead me to. And I think that really when I started working as a consultant and going into families' homes and taking on, you know, really seeing the bigger picture outside of just my one-on-one -on -one table work or play mm. work or out in the community-based work or whatever. It was really walking into families' homes and realizing and noticing the huge amount of stressors that families were living in and under, you know, parents going through divorces, levels of poverty that varied at times, um, managing really stressful school situations, you know, really noticing what was happening in a family home on a daily life. And I started to think a little bit more than like, there's probably stuff going on here that would be considered to be a trauma for some of our kids or a trauma for some of those parents and stuff like that. Um, and so really listening, looking and watching what was going on in my environment as a clinician, I think opened my eyes up kind of even more to what was likely happening for the kids that we work with as well. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're still a, you're still a BI at this point. No, I'm a BCBA. Oh, you're okay. Like, yeah. I mean, like uh, I do work with my kiddos on my caseload. Like I think it's really important to have direct contact and right, stuff like right. that. Yeah. yeah we'll so when, when you were, so you said when you were working as, as a BI on teams though, you, you kind of experienced some aversive practices possibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and so uh, first question uh, is just, so when are we talking? Because when a lot of people think about sort of the aversive practices of ABA, they're talking seventies and eighties and, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I definitely don't date you that far back. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, very early two thousands, like two thousand. Okay. Yeah. So it's like 21st century that we're talking. I'm not yeah. talking about on a child's face or like slapping a desk or anything like that, but no, you know, even the use of informational no's, for example, and then today that I would view an informational no when working with a child. Um, and then I remember specifically being trained at one point on how to 
deliver more aversive informational no's for a learner who is really struggling to learn. And uh, that was a pretty big wake up call for me. I was sitting in a workshop and um, being taught for eight hours how to be more aversive, which was very questionable ethical practice at the time, obviously, and today as well. So I don't know. I don't know what you mean by informational no's. Um, so when you are delivering like discrete trial instruction, for example, and you present yep. an SD, what this and the client makes a mistake and you say no mm-hmm. in response before you enter some sort of correction procedure. Okay. So that no. Um, or if the client is engaging in an undesirable, you know, maladaptive problem behavior or something like that, you, delivering a, a no as a piece of like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. So, uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so as part of the teaching protocols, um, that was pretty common with a lot of the teams that I was working on at the time was no, after every single trial where an error was made, and, you know, that was in retrospect when I look at that, and I've been thinking about that for many, many years as a practitioner, um, that was obviously, you know, problematic in, in many ways. But then the specific mm-hmm. training about how to make your voice like sharper and louder and kind of literally more scary for a child. So the wow. child would be more responsive to that no, because they weren't responding well enough to being told no, essentially. That's pretty messed up stuff for 2001, 2002. So 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I even considered sort of, you know, I think when everyone thinks of sort of aversion, they're thinking, you know, well, obviously the corporal punishment, but they're also thinking like, you know, the lemon sprays and the ammonia sprays and, and uh, you know, and, and some of these kind of, you know, nox- the noxious, you know, stuff on, 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 the, on, the, on the thumb so you don't suck your thumb or whatever. But just, to, just, just saying no to someone, you know, I, I wouldn't have considered that. But the way you describe it, that, yeah, that, yeah, and, and I, it, would, it, would, it could potentially be like hundreds of times a day even, depending mm-hmm. on sort of the, the scenario. Oh, totally. I mean, if you're like being taught, for your like your trials to go quickly and it, mm-hmm. you know and back then so many families had 40 hour a week therapy programs too right mm-hmm. and so 40 hours a week of intensive instruction and you know the learning trials are happening like one a second and the rate of the error rates are super high right and so just mm-hmm. you no know, over and over and over and over again in and of itself could potentially condition a fear response to people. And I kind of was going to touch on that later, but um, yeah, just that repeated no, I mean, over and over and over again, and then being trained to be aversive when delivering a no, or we use substances, you know, things like DRLs, for example, like a DRL, you know, if delivered properly is meant to be a reinforcement system. But if you're Mm -hmm. really trained in the implementation of the DRL, the DRL in and of itself can be pretty punitive. Um, and I had some pretty bad experiences being taught how to implement DRLs as well. And so for years and years and years after I stopped working with some of these different teams, I wouldn't touch DRLs as a system for, you know, behavior reduction. Basically, I was I was terrified of it. It was pretty aversive to me to implement it. So, yeah. If you're planning on collecting CEUs for this podcast, you'll need to know the three secret words. The first secret word is trauma. And so what what would that look like? Because we're talking about differential reinforcement of low rates of behavior. Yeah. So let's say, for example, we're working on reducing a behavior from occurring, I don't know, 
five times every 20 minutes down to four times. And you have like a little visual token board. Every time the kid engages in the undesirable behavior, mm. you move the token, you pair it with a aversive no. And at the end of it, if they were working for an edible, for example, you eat the edible in front of the child. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> right. Now you're instructed to eat the edible in front of the child. Right. And how many kids are going to sit and cry as their yeah. trusted behavior interventionist is sitting and eating their treat that they didn't earn in that, you know, I think I gave the 20 minute period as an example to start with. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I just want to, what, I, I don't have, I don't come from an early intervention background at all. I, my, all my experience has been with adolescents and adults and seniors and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when people talk to me about sort of, you know, uh, some of these early intervention protocols, I'm, I'm starting to have more of an idea what they're talking about, but I'm still not getting, so would this, would this fall into that, that low vast category? Is that what that was? Or was this before that? Or was this part of that? Or Yeah, that's when I, that's when I was doing some low vast or discrete trial teaching work. Um, at the same time, I was being trained in other methods as well. So my, mm. My experience in the Lovas world didn't last too too long, so just maybe tell us a little bit about kind of kind of what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of my practice and stuff like that. Yeah, well, and, and you have a company. What's it called? Uh, a block above behavioral a consulting. Block above, right? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm doing early intervention work all the way into adulthood, like midlife adulthood. My personal areas of passion have really shifted a lot over the years. When I was younger, I was like really into the little kids, the little itty bitty ones. Um, and I found that as I've aged, maybe my energy levels have shifted or something like that, but I've yep. really aged with my clients. So um, I really enjoy working with youth actually um, and adults as well as kid children as well. Like I still really enjoy that work as well, but I actually find it more challenging to be working with older learners because the histories of learning are so much more complex. So you end up then with um, individuals who are suffering with a range of different kinds of mental health issues in addition to, you know, having learning challenges and language development challenges as a result of being on the spectrum. So that's kind of my own personal area of interest um, when I work with families and I am also going back to school at some point in the next eight months or so. So, yeah. Mm, okay. And, 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 and what's going on there? What's the plan? Uh, the current plan that I think I'm pretty set on is to just get a second master's um, in counseling psychology, actually. So, right, right. Yeah. And, and, and in there, would, would you be kind of focusing on sort of this trauma area? Yeah, that's definitely my area of interest. Um, so maybe with that, we can kind of dive in a bit to, uh, to the paper that you did. Um, so this was after your, your master's degree. So this was sort of a, uh, just something you did after, after completing grad school. The, um, you kind of went back to UBC and, and did a little work with um, uh, Joe Lucician. Is that right? Yeah, that's totally right. That's right, and then and uh, and you published this paper, uh, and well, folks have heard it in the bio already, but it was uh, called "Autism Spectrum Disorder and the Experience of Traumatic Events: Review of the Current Literature to Inform Modifications to a Treatment Model for Children with Autism," and that was published in uh, uh, Journal of Autism and Developmental Disabilities in 2018, and we'll have a, a link to that. Um, and then I guess, and then oh, and then I see, and then later on, you did the. Um, the uh, or just recently here this this chapter in Fred Volkmar's book uh, that also kind of 
covers um, Autism Spectrum Disorder and the Law, which sounds like it's going to be a, a pretty amazing title. So what's this paper about? Uh, so yeah, so this paper is basically a model for an intervention to treat trauma in children with autism. I wrote it as a PhD requirement. I was planning on doing my PhD and I've been mulling over that since I wrote the paper um, and not sure about a PhD at this point in my life and its applicability and my desire is to pick up and uproot my family at this point. So um, I kind of decided to step away from that and do a second master's actually. So it was originally just um, a requirement to get into a PhD program. So I worked hmm. on that for a few years with Joe and anyone who's worked with Joe will know that that process takes more time than you ever anticipate it taking, getting through writing a paper. Um, but I learned so much in, in that time with Joe and it was definitely a very eye-opening experience. Um, and so basically what I did is I looked at the research in the area of autism and trauma. And like you've mentioned, there is even today, two years later, there's almost nothing out there. So mm -hmm. we continue to know very little about um, trauma and how it plays out in kids with autism or even teens and adults with autism. Um, its prevalence rates, you know, virtually nothing about it in our population that we work with. Um, there are no evidence-based treatments for trauma in our population. Um, we don't know about the effects that trauma has on, again, kids and adults on the autism spectrum. So um, there is room for research in every one of those areas and many more areas, basically, in, in regards to individuals on the spectrum. So I basically went to the literature in typical development in order to um, kind of cover what is trauma and how does trauma affect a typical person's lifespan? How does it affect their learning? How does it affect their emotion regulation, pain on the body and so on? And then what are the treatments for trauma in children? And then I used all of that information in order to inform the development of a treatment model um, for kiddos on the spectrum. So I developed that model with Joe's support and then we published that paper. That's crazy that for all the stuff that we're talking about right now, I mean, trauma and autism is, you know, a, a really, I don't, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's a big topic right now. A lot of people are talking about trauma and autism and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, not, not only how the possibilities of, you know, interventions causing trauma, but just sort of the inherent, uh, you know, uh, nature of the characteristics uh, of being autistic, you know, and the people are often alone, they often are lacking social contact, they're often, um, uh, some some of them are engaged in, you know, uh, self-injury and different kinds of kind of self-inflicted behaviors, you know, there's just a, there's a whole gamut of reasons why, you know, a kid with autism could experience trauma and just sort of daily activities, you know, daily yeah. interactions, um, not even sort of abuse or, you know, or neglect or anything yeah. like that, which we also see a lot of them. I mean, we see a ton of, of, of that piece, which is sad. We also see a ton of divorce in families with autism. So there's going to be sort of that have kids with autism. So there's going to be all those pieces, but, you know, and so it's mind blowing that we don't have any research on that. Right. And it's mind blowing that it's such a hot, button topic you know i mean you and i are both on a lot of the same different kinds of social media groups we see mm -hmm. in there and stuff and and people are talking about it absolutely everywhere there is for sure a 
business practice that's evolving and emerging in the US in particular around, you know, trauma and autism. And mm -hmm. yet there is, frankly, basically no research in the field. So, and yet, like, exactly like you said, like, we don't know what the prevalence rates are, but we know what the, roughly what the prevalence rates are in children. We know rough, we know that kids on the autism spectrum are more vulnerable, more susceptible to experiencing a broader range of events in their lives that may be traumatic. And then also exactly like what you said, like, you know, what could be a um, pretty neutral experience with a neurotypical child may actually be perceived as a traumatic experience for a child on the spectrum. So there's like mm -hmm. biological sensitivities that we're not very aware of yet right now either. So there's so much that we literally don't know in this field, but yet it's so popular and it's everywhere right now. Exactly. I, I I even think of just sort of, you know, the sensory kind of component and, mm -hmm. and you know, and folks that, you know, I, I knew, I knew, a, I knew a kid, for example, who I remember we were hanging out in the park and, and, uh, and he, he told me, uh, you know, a train was coming. And it came like 20 minutes later um, well, because he could hear the train yeah. um, because he had such, you know, crazy hypersensitivity yeah. to sound. And of course, loud noises, obviously, um, you know, we, we, we've seen that a lot as setting events for for a lot of the, the, the folks yeah. we support would be would just be super traumatic and it reminds me of sort of you know you know watching and this this will date me but like watching like tour of duty on cbs you know and and the uh the, the military it was a military uh, tv show and it was always talking about flashbacks and things like that and, and sort of sort of those pieces and, yeah. and i imagine these kids are kind of having these these same experiences but it also makes me think about sort of you know we're talking about being in a lot of these um social media groups together and seeing a lot of this discussion right now and a lot of uh, you know and, and and a lot of it's around aba and, and whatnot and uh and, we, and we're seeing you know some some uh, you know well-known folks in our field bcbas and whatnot bcbads that are sort of putting out the uh, the research on aba as sort of a, a way to kind of you know defend their work and defend what aba is all about mm -hmm. and the the thing I keep kind of going back to is that we don't have any we don't have any research to kind of come back with ourselves. We don't have any research on trauma. We don't have anything to actually prove that, you know. I don't. I, I really. It's not really important to me at the at this moment to prove that you know early ABA may cause trauma. Uh, it's more that that there is trauma in general and that they experience trauma and they have a lot of trauma and that we have to be a lot more kind of trauma informed and. And kind of the work we do. I mean, most of the uh, trauma-informed kind of supports that I see are with the kids you you described when you you were doing your review. Uh, the, you know, typical kids, mm -hmm. um, you know, in kind of school settings that have obvious sort of um, you know adverse childhood experiences. You know, of divorce, abuse, uh, neglect, and poverty, and you know all those sorts of things, addictions, and all those kinds of things. Um, but for these kids with autism, I mean, we have to talk about how the kids with autism, you know, I, I used to talk to parents of kids with autism who say, you know, well, you know, at least my kid's never going to be a drug addict, you know, um, you know, for the kids that are kind of maybe more yeah. severely affected. Yeah. Um, um, sure. But that doesn't mean your kid's not going to experience trauma. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so. What what did you, what did you kind of what did you kind of come up with in your research? Because your your research sort of found sort of the this you know the the stuff a lot of us already know about trauma, but there's also a lot of stuff I think that we don't know. So what 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 kind of key points did you find kind of in the in the literature review kind of part of your study? Yeah. So in terms of like the lit review components, I looked at um, 
like I said, neurobiological effects of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of looking at that area, again, everything that I did was informed by the research in typical development. And we basically mm -hmm. drew conclusions to how this is likely going to affect um, children and adults on the spectrum as mm -hmm. well. You know, they're, they're humans, they're animal beings, they're not going to be mm -hmm. any different in how trauma is going to be affecting them, how it displays itself, how it shows itself. Um, that might be a totally different story, how we can treat it possibly maybe a different story as well. But um, in terms of like the neurobiological effects, we know that trauma affects the limbic system um, in typically developing kids and the limbic system for those of you guys that need a bit of a refresher here i usually mm -hmm. need a refresher too but too. that's comprised of um the amygdala and the thalamus and the hypothalamus and hippocampus and some other structures as well um we know that being exposed to a repeated traumatic event or a chronic trauma can cause changes in a person's neural structures so they physiologically change as well as to their sensory systems which is super interesting that you pointed out you know working with the kids that we work with and, and the adults and youth that we work with and they have like those hypersensitivities to, to their environment um there's this parallel between uh, the possibly the non-traumatized brain in individuals with autism to the brain of somebody who's experienced a trauma um mm. even before you know an individual right. experienced trauma and be on the spectrum as well so it, there are some similarities to the brain that way um also we know or we've learned that when there's a psychosocial stress in the environment and that's that that is picked up by the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex um, basically is responsible for kind of getting the amygdala going it sets off the firing of the amygdala which triggers um a part of the nervous system into a fight or flight response and so i think people are more familiar with the fight or flight response these days um and also like the amygdala is responsible for um, processing emotion in the brain. And so it also is responsible for, for uh, eliciting a fear response. So it's basically evaluating, is there a threat in my environment? Is there no threat in my environment? If there is a threat, I should be afraid of something essentially. And so the amygdala is being triggered in those kinds of situations as well. And that then sets in response um, a fi the firing of the sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system. So um, that's kind of, we looked at the, the limbic system quite a bit in our work. Um, we also looked at motion regulation being a really, really big piece of how individuals on the spectrum um, are affected by trauma. So just like in typically developing kids, um, when they experience trauma, there is either um, emotion regulation that's adaptive that occurs or emotion regulation that's maladaptive that occurs. Um, and so in terms of adaptive emotion regulation, um, it's basically the ability to reappraise your story um, and to change it in such a way that you come out of that experience um, with a balanced perspective of what happened to you essentially, right? And so some individuals are able to regulate more effectively than others, and they're therefore able to um, narrate or rewrite their experience into, in such a way that they'll necessarily have experienced that 
event as a trauma or it had less impact on them or they are able to make sense of their story early on. Um, whereas people who engage in emotion suppression, which is pretty common when you are experiencing a lot of trauma and it happens over and over and over again. Um, also, we know that many kids on the spectrum engage in emotional suppression as well as a regulation strategy, right? They mm -hmm. basically push the feelings away in different ways. Um, and so the suppressing of the feelings is often associated with trauma, the pushing them away. Sometimes people dissociate from their memories, from their emotions, from their bodies and stuff like that. And that's all, you know, said to be um, maladaptive. So yeah. that happens in typical kids. And, you know, we, I'm sure, see it happening in the learners that we work with. And we see fluctuations in their abilities to regulate emotion and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. So. I see. There, so there's something you said kind of early on there. Uh, I mean, first, first off, all all that neurological kind of information, I think, is just really important for folks to kind of remember that trauma is a huge biological component, and mm -hmm. it's, it's not it's not just a, you know I had a bad day and and thought about it, and so that's why I'm, I'm acting this way. Like there's there's stuff happening in the brain, like actual changes. And I know, um, you know, I mean, I, I have ADHD, and so I know that you know, that there's, there's an actual chemical sort of error happening with my frontal lobe somehow, uh, that causes me to think about things a certain different way or, or affects impulse control and all those sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, the, the, the folks that are experiencing this trauma, you know, often have no control over kind of, you know, some of the stuff they're engaging in. It's, it, it, it's almost kind of reflexive. I thought it was really interesting when you said, we were talking about sort of the brain similarities between folks that have experienced trauma and those with autism who haven't experienced, you know, the kind of trauma that we, we, you know, we talk about mm -hmm. and, and that they look similar. And so, because from what I understand about trauma and what you've been saying already, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a, there's a lot around hypo and hyper arousal, mm -hmm. right? Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. And so, and so, and, and this is sort of something we hear early on when we learn about autism, that they're often hypersensitive or hyposensitive to certain yeah. things. And so the idea that their brain is already, you know, that way is, is, mm -hmm. is, is, is so wild to think about. Yeah. Well, actually, um, there's a couple of different researchers that write about that. There's Connor Kearns, who moved up to UBC a couple of years ago from the States, and she published a, what I consider to be a pretty seminal paper in 2015 um, in you know, the niche area of trauma and autism, where she touches on um, a whole bunch of areas as well in her paper. And she touches on the brain, she touches on emotion regulation. Um, and then also in that paper, there's reference to an article that was written in 2010, sorry, by Wood and Gatto. And they also um, talk about hyperarousal, hypoarousal, and again, similarities between trauma, emotion regulation, what happens there. Um, and then the whole idea of emotional suppression, emotional regulation. Yeah. Anyways, I, I feel like I've shifted a little bit from what you just said and I forgot what you just were saying. I'm so sorry. Ben. No worries. It's just, uh, I mean, there's so many different directions you can go with this stuff. Yeah. And by the way, we'll have uh, links to all the articles that, that you reference uh, in, in show notes for folks to check out later. One thing I totally we forgot to touch on, I don't know if it's worth it, but we mm -hmm. haven't really defined trauma for people. I yes. Something like that we need to do. I don't Let's think Let's do it. Let's do it because I, I, you know, it was I was actually having a, a discussion with uh, my 
one of one of my mentors just just yesterday about this and I was labeling something trauma and mm-hmm. she kept telling me nope that's not trauma nope that's not trauma so I maybe I don't even know what trauma is so I'd love to hear it okay well there's a bunch of different definitions of trauma that kind of t- tends to be the way things go but there's some mm. that definitely um, really resonate with me so very generally speaking trauma is a wound right and it, mm. it's gonna it's gonna be a wound of some sort um, it also, it's a wound that's going to lead to the development of fear. So at the core of trauma typically is a fear response and that can generalize, um, across a really broad range of stimuli. So AI, for example, may have experienced, oh, I don't even have an example that top of my head. Let's say I experienced severe ongoing bullying at school. Every day mm-hmm. I go to school, I'm being bullied by my peers. Um, you know, the fear that that environment then evokes in me every time I go to school, I'm afraid to be there. I'm afraid of my peers around me. I'm afraid to make a new friend. Um, that can generalize outside of that environment. And so what happens with trauma is that fear will generalize. So I may then be going to like basketball practice and I get to basketball practice and suddenly I'm afraid of the coach and suddenly I'm afraid of my teammates who I've known for a really long time. You know, I then go to a job interview and I'm at a job interview, you know, years later, fast forward or something like that. And I'm interviewing with someone and I'm afraid of the person that's in front of me. So the fear can generalize across a really broad range of areas and really impact an ability as a person to function and to live a really good quality of life. Another one that I really like, it's kind of like the opposite of being connected to people. It's, it's disconnection from people. And one of the things that people often talk about who've experienced trauma is that they really struggle to trust people. They struggle to engage. They struggle to be in the present moment with other people. Trauma, it can also be a physical injury, right? So it can be a serious accident. It can be being born prematurely, for example. Um, And then it can be a psychological injury. So when I talk about it, I kind of tend to talk about it from the psychological perspective, but there are physical and medical traumas as well. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of one variable. Um, Then there are traumas that happen once, right? The event happened a single time. Um, a terrible example of that would be being raped, for instance, mm-hmm. once, um, or it can be repeated events. And so you kind of have touched on them as you've been talking, actually. So um, emotional neglect, physical neglect, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and so on. And you also touched on the ACEs as well. So that's kind of a study that came out in 1998 um, by Felili and his colleagues. And that was the first study that really showed the connection between the impacts of trauma into the future. And so he basically, you know, developed and created this list of ACEs, like you said, the adverse childhood experiences. And there's a list of ACEs um, that likely contribute to medical illnesses, early morbidity, and things like that as well. So trauma, like you said, it if it's a psychological trauma, it has a physiological impact on the body. Um, It affects the brain, it affects the nervous system. And some people go even further to argue that it's stored within the body. So rather than trauma treatment happening, for example, at a cognitive level, talking about about your trauma, um, treatment should happen from a physiological perspective. So um, yeah, that's kind of, you know, some of the different definitions of trauma that I, I like, but it's important yeah. to remember that like it's a spectrum 
and it affects everyone differently. So you might be able to go to school and get bullied five times by the same group of peers and be okay. You could walk away unscathed, but I may not be able to have that same experience. I may go to school. I may get bullied five times and I may walk out of that pretty traumatized. So that's kind of where individual differences play a pretty big role. I I think you make a really good point about sort of, it also doesn't have to be a multiple event cause you know it doesn't you don't have to be bullied five times you could be bullied once you could like you said you could be raped once um you could be abused once um you could have you know a major injury once Um, a major injury head injuries i suppose that's a whole other game because now we're actually talking about you know actual physical lesions lesions in the brain and that's a whole other game um uh, still trauma related that they they do call it traumatic brain injury for a reason um but um we won't get into that area too much um although it is definitely an an, an area of importance in our field Mm -hmm. um and so kind of going back to sort of folks with autism a lot of these sorts of well, things we just don't even think about that are happening sort of all the time for them, particularly going back to the, the I like the sound sensitivity example. I mean, if they live in a city, I mean, yeah. they're, they're being bombarded by this aversive, you know, stimuli over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, yeah. like thousands and thousands and thousands of times, you know, a week. Yeah. Um, it almost makes you sick just sort of thinking about sort of, you know, what some of these kids are exposed to. The second secret word is ascent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It's, we have no, no real way of knowing, right? So. And then with the aces, I heard, I think it was, uh, and I always pronounce her name wrong. Um, the, the one that, uh, the, the cusp emergence, uh, uh, Camille. Kolu. Kolu. I, I heard her, I think it was her talking about, uh, I think she described the aces, um, and I think she changed the C to like conditioned experiences um, to point out that it's not just kids that are experienced. It's you don't have to be a, you don't have to be an, in childhood to experience these events and then have that effect on you. Totally not. No, I mean trauma is something that can occur throughout your entire life, right? Depending on again your, your environment and what you come into contact with on a daily basis. Arguably, and a lot of people will say that us living through a pandemic right now will be experienced by a large majority of us as a trauma. And we in the present moment have no idea what how it's going to impact us mm-hmm. down. So, you know, 100%. I think I'm okay. I think I'm pretty resilient. I think I'm pretty fine. I'm doing well by my family right now. But in retrospect, there might be a different story, right? Absolutely, so, absolutely. And that, that, that pandemic is not on that list of aces, so. No, not, no, it's not. <laughs> no, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, the, the, so. the, 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 the Spanish flu was sort of before that, so. So you, so you, you did the, the, the lit review, and, and, and basically you, sort of, you found, you know, you, you learned kind of about the, the biological and physiological kind of connections to trauma, and then, and then I think you kind of started to go through sorts some of the 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 I guess the treatments that are out there for yeah. for typical kids. Yeah. So yeah, back to the lit review. Um, one of the small area I really want to point out that we know a little bit about in kids with autism actually, and mm. is in regards to their behavioral symptoms when they've experienced a trauma. So just kind of to summarize, mm-hmm. um, the data suggests that children with autism experience similar symptoms to those that meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. So that's definitely an important thing to point out. Mm. Um, and that there is an overlap in symptoms in children with ASD 
who do not um, necessarily have reported histories of abuse. So sometimes basically what that's saying is that the symptoms can be similar, whether you have autism and trauma or autism without trauma, um, the way that behaviors are expressed can look Mm. very similar. And so that's what we call diagnostic overshadowing. Mm. And that's what makes figuring out or pinpointing or finding trauma essentially in the kiddos that we work with really challenging because the kid who's sitting over in the corner scratching his arm yesterday might be scratching his arm today but between yesterday and today maybe something bad happened to him Mm. and so maybe today the quality is different so he's pressing a lot harder or maybe Mm. he's now scratching with an item whereas yesterday he wasn't scratching with an item and so um that's really important to point out because it's very hard to see the differences between what is autism, what is trauma, yeah. and one more in there, ADHD is another one that looks really similar. So um, especially in, I hate to, I hate to kind of use the term, but in learners who have um, more advanced language skills, um, who are integrated into the regular classroom environment, kind mm. of learning at the same level as their peers have, you know, maybe some social deficits and so on. Um, but with those kids, it's very difficult sometimes to tell the differences between yeah. what is trauma, what is autism, what is even ADHD. So, yeah. That's huge. I, I've never heard of that diagnostic overshadowing. And that's kind of scary because I I think about a lot of the, you know, the, the folks I supervise, um, the cases that kind of, you know, that we've come across over and over again. And with trauma sort of being at the forefront right now, uh, we're looking at a lot of these sorts of behaviors and going, hmm, you know, you know, things like things like smearing, um, yeah. uh, you know, like you said, self injury, um, mm-hmm. hiding hiding under a table, um, yeah. um, and, and and so many more, and yeah. we're going. Well, for sure there's trauma. There's got to be trauma in that kid's life, Uh, especially if they're like older kids or adults because, you know, in in maybe like a staffed residential setting. So we we make assumptions that they've been pulled out of the home for some reason um, and and, and jump right to trauma and maybe they must have been abused. Um, and, And of course, making that assumption can be, you know, problematic too um you know it, oh it, for sure think of like the implications behind that right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I, I love the idea of sort of looking at uh you know i'm definitely going to pay more attention but looking at the quality like you said of 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 the behavior from sort of you know point a to point b like you you might not you wouldn't necessarily be watching for that no right? no like are you yeah how, how often are you paying attention to yesterday's head hitting was happening at, you know, this rate, whereas yeah. today's head hitting is happening at this rate. Yeah. And also there's a change in intensity. And that's that was actually a, a component of our treatment model was the functional behavioral assessment. And it's different. Like Dr. Camille Kolu, trauma-informed FBAs. Um, and her whole thing is trauma-informed applied behavior analysis. Um, and so she talks about trauma-informed FBAs and she talks about understanding the history and understanding the history in great depth because that will then help you understand whether or not there are setting events at play. Mm. Um, But here what I'm looking at really is I'm looking at already existent behaviors, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm working with a client who has a list of three or four different kinds of maladaptive behaviors. Um, And But then either something new pops up, for example. So like you said, like, well, all of a sudden, I have an 11-year-old literally running under a table, curling their body up into a ball. 
They've never done that before. That seems pretty unusual for an 11 year old to be doing whether or not they have autism, Mm -hmm. you know, to curl up and to go into like that kind of like a self-protective body position, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so there's like a new behavior that pops up that's different than all the other ones. Mm -hmm. Where is that coming from and why? Um, And also then, like I said, like the, the change in rate or the change in quality of the behavior the change in its intensity, for example. Um, And so that can be indicative of a potential trauma, right? And so with the population that we work with who can't articulate, you know, something bad has happened to me. I mean, a typically developing child who's experiencing trauma can't go to a trusted caregiver and say something bad is happening to me. How do we expect the kids and the adults that we work with to be able to go find a caregiver and say, hey, something not good is going on Mm -hmm. to me, right? So like, we have to be super astute observers. And I'm not saying that every family's home or every group home that you walk into, there's trauma happening and it's mm-hmm. ongoing and it's there and it's present. Like, I'm not suggesting that whatsoever, but I'm definitely suggesting that, you know, when you're looking at conducting an FBA, maybe you do need to look at it from a trauma-informed perspective. So, 100%. yeah. So, and, and, and we're going to, I want to get on that soon on, on sort of kind of the model, but you yeah. you did sort of talk about some of the therapies that are currently being used on sort of typical kids with trauma and, and what, what are folks doing there? Yeah. So like the, the most robust therapy is going to be trauma focused um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's, it, it has the biggest body of literature currently. I also think that just kind of implicitly when you're, evaluating the effectiveness of CBT because it's rooted essentially in behaviorism and it's super observable, you're going to get really good results from doing research in that area, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There are other areas of research that are less robust or emergent practices or, you know, don't necessarily have much um, showing whether or not they're effective at this point. And they tend to be kind of like body-based approaches to intervention um, or like, what is it called? Oh, it's slipping my mind right now one of them I'm just totally forgetting, but the, the research behind it is, is less robust. Mm-hmm. Um, so our model really was informed from a trauma focused CBT perspective. Um, but in retrospect, kind of like after I had submitted after the paper had gone into print, I was like, Ugh, I really wish I had focused on some other areas as well, but that's okay. That's, that's the past. Um, yeah, yeah. And then also like act-based approaches as well, right? For, well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. My big thing that I'm really missing is, is the act component, and I really I knew about it when I was writing the paper, and I was starting to learn about it. Um, but I went and uh, did an extensive training of it actually this last year, and so I'm more familiar with it now. And I really wish that there was more of an act-based approach in it. But there are pieces for sure that come from act, even in in the treatment model. So. Aside from your treatment model, are there folks using ACT for trauma? Like, Yeah, in, in the general population, absolutely. Mm. Um, using it with adults. Not sure if they're using it with kids. Right. Um, but ACT is really globally applied to so many different kinds of things that plague the human condition, really. Yes. So, yeah. It, it, it would be surprising if there wasn't an application for trauma, yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, Dr. Robin Wessler, yep. she specializes, she's out of California, I think, and she was she was one of the presenters, and she specializes in treating veterans um, from an act-based perspective. So yes. they're all in PTSD. Okay, so let's let's dive into your model. What 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 you what you come up with? What's what are you doing? 
well, I was working with Joe, so it's a multi-component treatment package. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, it's it's got a lot of different components to it. And then, um, so there's like the treatment package. And then we also had the components that we thought we should consider for individualization of the treatment package for all the different cases that we're working with. And I, I really feel super strongly that anybody who's working um you know and implementing different treatments with individuals with trauma has to be flexible in what they're doing like everybody's going to respond should be so sensitive to the client but in general um we had a component of implementing functional behavioral assessments and we've talked about that a little bit already developing behavior support plans specifically for parents so teaching parents how to be change agents in the children's homes um you know provided that the children aren't living in care or something like that doing behavioral skills training with parents as well as a component of the package um, making sure that we were collecting data and doing ongoing evaluation of the outcomes of the intervention um, a really big piece obviously is going to be to teach appropriate emotion regulation so instead of emotion suppression learn how to be present with your emotions through mindfulness practices and uh, progressive muscle relaxation training was another component of it teaching emotion recognition so one of the things that is really interesting if you look at individuals who've experienced trauma they have a really hard time naming emotions in other people they make mm. a lot of mistakes yeah and also, so then you have a kiddo on the spectrum who can't necessarily name emotions in themselves and also can't necessarily name emotions in others. Mm -hmm. Now they've experienced a trauma, so it's even harder for them. So emotion naming in both directions would be a component of the treatment package for sure. Um, sometimes when it's okay to do it, um, implementing graduated exposure to memories of the trauma, for example, but that can be really highly like contraindicated in some case, cases, mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to do it, you would have to stop it, for example, if it led to the emergence of like suicidal thought or depression or anything like that. So and that was so a piece of our model. Um, and then things like making like making sure that you have more sessions, like a traditional CBT program is typically 12 weeks in length, um, but increasing the number of sessions because we know that our learners need more time to acquire skills and to learn new things. Also decreasing the session length uh, if needed. So instead of an hour long session, maybe a 30 minute session is more appropriate. Mm. Cognitive restructuring could be a component for some people who have more advanced language abilities. Um, teaching about trauma and what trauma responses look like and what they are in the body. Providing parent and child support between sessions is super important. I think mm. for anybody undergoing any kind of trauma treatment intervention um, of any sort, just being present between sessions, because a lot can happen between sessions for kids who are in therapy. Um, developing a safety plan if there's a re-traumatization that happens and if a kid needs help for example and then making sure that we program for generalization and maintenance so that kind of was like those were the different components of mm. package and then all the different pieces where you may want to change what you're doing depending on the client that you work with as well right there. and would would um, definitely a multi-component package joe style for sure um <laughs> uh, which is awesome i did my thesis with joe as well I, I i know the experience he's got a incredible uh work ethic when it comes to research <laughs> and and you know he's he's a he's a, a bit of a guru when it comes to sort of the 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 pbs approach and so i, I yeah. totally understand uh, applying that from a bunch of different directions i know one thing that joe does like to do is um is kind of bring other folks on board um 
I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff in here. Some of it, you know, is familiar to me, certainly the BST and the FBA and all that kind of stuff. But then there's some stuff that, uh, you know, maybe I, I don't know as much about it. Would this be a package that would be entirely implemented by a BCBA or would there be other folks? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, the, the intention behind it was I was really interested in working not just within the field of behavior analysis anymore. And so that's specifically why I expanded beyond behavior analysis. Mm. Uh, there's so many areas in here that are outside of our scope of practice and and knowledge, really, right? And so the, the whole premise would be to to work if you were going to implement something like this, to work with people who are experienced in counseling, experienced in psychology, um, or to acquire skills and training that then allow you to do this, right? So, I mean, this was just a suggested model based on the existing literature. So right, there are right. for sure things in here like graduated exposure. Yeah, we know what systematic desensitization is as behavior analysts, mm -hmm. but graduated exposure to traumatic events, that's like way outside of our scope of practice, Absolutely, right? yeah. Cognitive restructuring, even I would say many of us don't have any kind of experience with that. No, um, not at but, all. Yeah, but lots of us know how to teach emotion regulation, just maybe not these ways. You know, we know how to program for generalization and maintenance and so on mm -hmm. um, and build safety plans. But really, there's components here that are, were explicitly designed to be outside of the realm of behavior analysis. Hmm. For sure. A couple areas I, I wouldn't mind hearing a little more about uh i know you said we we did talk about it a little bit with you know camille Kolo's work but i think folks would like to hear and i would like to just hear more about kind of what a trauma-informed fba looks like like what's the difference mm. yeah so a trauma-informed a is going to look at like i said um the differences in the intensity of the problem behavior. So mm -hmm. has there been a change in its intensity? Mm -hmm. um, has there been a change in the quality of the behavior or its magnitude? Mm -hmm. um, and then has there been a change in the behavior or is there a new behavior that mm -hmm. has emerged? So there's those components to look at. And then also what I've been starting to learn about from Dr. Kolu um, is looking at the client history um, and then putting that within the framework of a setting event and setting event analysis um, as part of the FBA process as well. Um, also, she talks about in her work going to the deeper function. And it's so weird because I've been also saying a very similar phrase for um, what feels like a few years now. Mm -hmm. It's like, our FBAs look at the reason why the behavior is occurring in the first place. But if you understand trauma, you often understand that there's more that's ha happening covertly. And mm. I think when you start to get into that covert stuff, things get so messy for us as behavior analysts, right? Like, are you a radical behavior analyst or not a radical behavior analyst? Mm. And and where do you put covert over behavior on in, in, the, in your work and in your treatment protocols and stuff like that? And so um, I think where she's getting at that, at that kind of stuff is, is the more covert stuff that goes on below the surface, but it's really important. Is is there a way to measure private events, essentially, essentially as a component of your FBA, mm -hmm. and how do they then? Um, and where are they responsible for the behavior problems that we're seeing? Right? Um, yeah. The third secret word is regulation. 
is there a way <laughs> like to, to to measure that? Because that's yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I I guess again, I guess I see where where kind of that that's where maybe the act piece um, might might come in a bit. Uh, but I, I like I like the I, I I like the idea of just look at, because we already look at intensity and we already look at behaviors, but we don't sort of break that down and, and kind of look a little closer because sometimes we're not going to get that client history that sort of tells us you know came from this home or lived in this place and that sort of thing, um, and so just having the, sort of those indicators to to kind of look a little closer I think is really neat and it almost seems seems like those should be kind of standardized questions. I know some folks will just um, the interview sort of portion of an FBA they just kind of will do on the fly kind of do the W5 questions and kind of ask things but then there's other places where there's these structured types interviews you know I know a lot of folks in in kind of the world of PBS are all still using you know the O'Neill et al um, uh, book there and the FAI I I know it was I think it was redone in 2015 I don't know how much different it was from the 97 version but you know maybe we should be seeing some of these kinds of questions sort of just being you know embedded in in, in those things I mean like even it, it is related even things like asking you know if your learner client is at school today you know, when the parent or the caregiver, whoever is responsible for drop off, how did he or she sleep last night, right? We know sleep is a setting event, but sleep is also severely affected in people who've experienced trauma, mm. right? And so like, not only is sleep a setting event for most humans, right? If you're sleep deprived, like, come on, think about how you function and how you operate in your environment. But then if you are every single night not sleeping because you're having like memories of the trauma, you're huh. waking in the, middle of the night and stuff like that, right? So asking about school with food have they eaten today and then looking at like oh my gosh every single day the parent says they don't eat breakfast why are they not being eating breakfast Right. right so what is going on from that perspective and you know the us and canada are so different our population is so small comparatively speaking and the number of children in care here is so much so 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 many there are so so many fewer children in care here in comparison to the us and Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of the issues that come up in the conversations and in different kinds of um, sessions, like in the U.S., they're so they're vastly different than what we see in here and talk about here, just because our population is so much smaller. We don't know, you know, how many uh, we don't hear regularly enough about all the kids who are in care who come to school hungry. Right. And and yet they're in care. And so we assume that because they're in care, they're being fed well, they're at least their physiological needs are being cared for. But in fact, they're being neglected when they're living in care. And then they come to school and they come to school hungry, right? And so now they can't learn, but now they're also triggered because they're hungry for like the 10th day in a row when they come to school. And so that's where we don't see so much of what's going on when talking about kids who are experience that's so fascinating the idea of looking at, at looking at kind of these these setting events and these sorts of um you know uh, operations that are in place um and we just sort of look at okay yeah like you said poor sleep uh doesn't eat much uh or didn't didn't eat breakfast um do you have proper clothing? Are you, are you dressed warmly right on a wet rainy day every time it's wet and rainy do you come to school with you know not the best clothing for that situation you know that's neglect and whether or not a person is intending to neglect and so that's where it's really hard right it's like well by pointing that out by saying you know well that's neglectful behavior it then sounds like you're judging the caregivers whoever the caregivers happen to be really as 
people who work with highly vulnerable populations, if we can try to break away from that judgment and really come at it from the perspective of like, you're doing your best under the circumstances with what you've been thrown into. Yeah. And this is not your fault, but I need to find a way to help you improve your life so that your child or your, you know, the child that's in your care's quality of life is going to yeah. improve where we should be coming from with all this. So totally. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm just thinking, and just kind of think of we dig when we dig into those. So, so when we have those kinds of setting events, often our our, our solution is or our intervention is okay. Let the kid have a nap. Okay, give the kid a snack, or you know, uh, lower your expectations that day. And we think those are sort of the interventions that are going to you know, as as um, you know, the PBS folk like to say, um, you know, uh, eliminate and uh, mm-hmm. or neutralize and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and 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 make irrelevant, um, you know, those setting events. But if you consider them from a trauma perspective, they're way deeper. It's it's not just that he didn't have a good sleep last night. It's that you know, there's there's you know, there there's a there's a trauma component, and we don't put a trauma related intervention into place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's yeah, that's that's mind blowing. It, 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 just the the idea of of. You're blowing my mind today, Alexia. It's wicked. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Um, but so scary at the same time. Um, I, I, I just wanted, I wanted to touch a little bit on uh, emotional regulation. We kind of talked about this uh, when we met a couple of weeks back. And yeah. and uh, this is an area, another area that I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge in. Um, and, and then we talk about sorts of, uh, you know, breathing exercises and things like mm-hmm. you said, like... Um, like the progressive relaxation training and and sort of some of these sort of standard, I don't want to say, well, I, yeah, they are, I mean, they're standard in kind of the PBS realm, and then they're probably mm-hmm. standard other places as sort of being go-to strategies to kind of do emotional regulation, but there's not much else. But you were touching on, you touched on a point that, that was a, a whole new term for me that I never even considered, this whole idea of kind of co-regulation and, and the necessity for that. Um, uh, even in, you know, older folks that maybe have no emotional regulation skills. Can you kind of just explain that again and what that looks like and what that's about? Yeah, for sure. So there's a big area in psychology that looks at co-regulation skills. And um, the whole idea is that us as being interconnected beings, we don't learn to self-regulate without learning how to co-regulate. And so co-regulation is what happens between a mom and her infant over, you know, probably millions of of learning trials, if you had to look at it as as a learning trial of some sort, right? But it, it happens over like countless numbers of trials where the mom and the infant and then the mom and the toddler and then the mom and the young child are building the ability to eventually one day in the future regulate emotions effectively, but it's done as a dyad initially. Um, and it's, we talked about, you know, how with typical kids, if you're, if your child is crying, if they're dysregulated, you know, if they're flopping to the ground, many, many, many parents are going to go, they're going to pick up their child and they're going to try to soothe and comfort them before they go anywhere else, right? Like if we're talking about a toddler who's flipping out because it's time to eat dinner and they don't want to go eat dinner, you know, most parents are going to be inclined to go and approach their toddler 
help their toddler come down and then bring their toddler to the dinner table, right? We're not going to leave our toddler flipping up, crying on the ground, ignoring the tantrum until they're ready to come and eat, assume that they can regulate by themselves. And so, you know, parents go and they, they soothe, they comfort, they hold their kids, they rock their kids, they rub their kids on the back, they rub their kids on the head and so on. And that happens together. And the calm, steady state of the parent is what teaches the child to then like reflect back that calm, steady state, right? So that happens together. The two, the two, the two people together are regulating. And then over time, eventually, you know, your child can self-regulate across a broad range of contexts. Um, and as they get older and older. And so the same goes for, yeah, like I believe in, you know, progressive muscle relaxation training and mindfulness showing quite effective across a really broad range of different populations and stuff like that. But this whole of, I'm not going to expect you to regulate your own emotions if you can't even regulate your emotion um, with me, with the, within the context of you and I together. There's, that's a pretty big ask of someone to, hey, go regulate by yourself over there in the corner with your little calm down bottles, right? Use your breathing card, <laughs> breathe in, <laughs> that's right. count to five, 10 times yeah. all by yourself. Like, come on. So I, I didn't have to do that growing up like why should anybody else so mm -hmm. and 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 would you see co-regulation as being a strategy that you'd put in a plan mm -hmm. yeah 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 sorry we we totally talked about all of this um a couple of weeks ago when we were talking so co-regulation is written into my calm down plans for my learners whether or not they have um experienced a trauma so instead of gosh ignoring any kind of like maladaptive behaviors if a child is crying if a child is upset if the child is like throwing materials off the table mm -hmm. i actually remove um demands in that moment and i help them calm down and regulate and each client on my case will have their own calm down plan basically that looks different for them depending on um their own set of circumstances and histories and stuff like that um, and then once they're calm, then we go back to work and we don't go back to work until they're what we call socially engaged. So, um, again, social engagement comes from, not from behavior analysis, that comes from just the, the general psychology literature and, um, they they have to be capable and ready to learn. They have to be at least looking at me once in a while. If they do engage in eye contact, you know, maybe they smile a little bit when I speak with them, they are physically capable of being in proximity to my body so that they can be close to me while learning right sitting across from them or something um and so i look at these social engagement behaviors right it's really easy to operationally define what that looks like before i start to present task demands again mm. so okay so then for uh, that, that makes perfect sense to me but i'm going to hear you're going to hear from people that are going to say Okay, but you know you're 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 reinforcing the problem behavior. You're you're letting them escape from the task, and you're giving them attention. Like like, what are you doing? It's gonna is gonna be kind of the question. Yeah. So what do you say to that? Nah. Yeah, I'm giving them attention because they're human and they're communicating with me in whatever way that they know how to communicate right now. That they're under some sort of distress. And I think that it would be inhuman and potentially traumatizing to ignore mm -hmm. um, those signs of distress in our learners. And then in terms of giving in and letting them escape, um, that kind of stuff is really easy to control for in a learning environment, mm -hmm. right? Like if I had six programs to do on my schedule today, and as long as I get through those six programs, 
I, my child hasn't, my learner hasn't, hasn't escaped the task demands that I've, right. you know, had on the table from the get go. We're going to do these programs and it's going to be what it's going to be. But first I'm going to help you calm down. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if I notice something like, oh, all of a sudden we've gone from being able to do these programs for this many minutes in a session to really consistently, <laughs> all this is like, Every time, you know, this program comes out, this is what happens and it becomes super predictable. Yeah. Of course, I'm going to change my method. Of course, I'm going to be a behavior analyst and make sure that I have a procedure that, you know, is effective at getting them to do the work that really ultimately we're trying to get them to do in sessions. But more often than not, I've found that teaching kids to calm down, to co-regulate just leads to better emotion regulation and we get more work and not less work done. And it's perfectly logical. The kid at school who's able to regulate their emotions effectively at school learns better and learns more. And the same is going to happen in a one-on-one -on -one intensive, you know, ABA program or, you know, not early intervention, mm -hmm. but still ABA program with older learners, right? You have to be emotionally regulated in order to be able to learn. Yeah. So can't learn under distress, essentially. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think, I mean, what you're describing is I think what a lot of these, these advocates now that we're, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, these, you know, these autistic advocates and whatnot are, are, are looking for, I think they're looking for, you know, uh, they're not looking for us to sort of tell them that, you know, we have research to support our work and they're not looking for us to tell them that, um, you know, we don't do it that way anymore. I think part of what maybe they're looking for us to tell them is is we we can take a trauma informed approach to kind of everything we're doing and you know it sounds like you've come up with a really nice way to have a trauma informed approach to kind of you know that sort of discrete trial kind of environment where you know if folks are struggling we can work on teaching a different skill. Let's work. We're now we're going to work on teaching regulation, because um, this is a, this is a great opportunity to do that. And co-regulation is kind of, you know, the 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 first step to that. And so you know, it it, it sounds beautiful. So I wonder um, about at, kind of more older folks or adults and that sort of thing. I know mm -hmm. I work in with we're uh, some some cases that are kind of a little. You know, complex and and definitely a definite trauma history. You know, uh, with these cases, uh, a known trauma history um, for yeah. sure. Um, you know, kids are kind of we're, we're really talking. We're not talking about kids anymore. Young adults, so you know, in their twenties or whatever. Um, you know, living in a kind of a residential kind of setting. I know, I know, not necessarily um, your experience level, maybe kind of more severe. In turn, maybe more kind of appearing like an early learner type of thing, so maybe less less yeah. language and whatnot. Yeah. Um, would would you would you so self regulation tends to be something a lot of folks are looking for. How how do I help you know this guy calm down? How to help this guy relax? You know, a lot of them will say we've tried the calm down strip. You know the the count to 10 and breathing and whatnot. And, you know, and they tend to be really good at blowing out candles um, after, after, <laughs> after the training goes for a while or, or blowing bubbles or whatnot, but they're not actually, you know, getting air into their lungs or anything like that. Uh, just doing the blow sound. Um, in fact, I had one kid who, you know, had 
years and years of the Combound strip and and and, and it was um, and and echolet and they just kind of spoke with some echolalia and it says uh, uh-huh. time to blow um was was you know every time they every time they had a little a little upset or whatever I'll go blow and then they would just you know blow a bubble and then leave yeah. but um can can we can we would that be effective for adults too sort of that co-regulation approach well, think about, I, I'm going to kind of flip it around on you for a second. Think think about yourself when you're upset. Yeah. Some people respond with leave me alone and get away from me. And I'm just going to deal with this on my own. Yeah. But like, let's think about, you know, I, I don't know if you are single, not single or whatever. Do you have a partner that you live yeah. with? But if you're upset and it doesn't have something to do with your partner, yeah. right? Do you want to be left alone or would you rather be calming down and processing with somebody else around you? Yeah, I mean, I totally want to be able to talk it through. Maybe have a hug. Maybe uh, just kind of sit down and and uh, you know a pat in the back, yeah. or, or 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 just I get it. That sucks. That sort of thing for sure. So inherently, like even as adults, we do a lot of regulation with our partners. Right. And you know, there are times where you're in conflict with your partner, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm not interested in this right now. I'll talk to you in a few hours." But so much of our ability to regulate happens in the context of another person. And so, you know, when you think about those adults that you're working with, you're right, like the population of people that we work with is different. When I work with an adult, they tend to have quite a bit of language and so on. But still, it's be with that person, just be there while they are calming down. Eventually, they will calm down. They're not going to be in a heightened and an overly aroused state endlessly, right? And so, do you need to walk away from them? Do you need to turn your back on that person because they're engaging in a problem behavior right now, right? Or can you work on developing a plan that involves some level of co-regulation that's appropriate within an adult con- adult context, right? Um, and build a plan around that and that particular adult. And, you know, if that calm down strip isn't <laughs> working after 10 years or five years, you know, then then change the approach and try to just like, sit offer different things that they can use to help themselves calm down but don't walk away from that person right just just stay in their presence and allow that to happen and maybe maybe that will help you in the creation and development of a different kind of calm down plan Um, you know you're not going to be rocking an adult right Right. you're not going to like you you're not going to rub an adult's back right but you don't need to walk away from the adult either and assume that they can do it on their own because they likely can't do it on their own so and eventually they, they hopefully they'll learn how to hopefully they'll have better resilience and better ability to withstand hard emotions and i think that's a big piece too is like not just calm down but it, and that's where the act the mindfulness the meditation stuff comes in it's being able to withstand harder and bigger feelings comes as a result of direct practice sure being in the feelings right and so that doesn't come from a calm down breathing strip. So how do you get how do you get from co-regulation to mindfulness? Starting to incorporate mindfulness practices just by starting to incorporate different kinds of practices. So um, things like mindful hearing. I mean, everybody probably who studies ABA knows about the meditation on the soles of the yep. feet that was developed by behavior analysts. Um, it's possibly one of my least favorite meditations. Oh, but um yeah but anyways uh mindful hearing mindful breathing uh body scans and so you can incorporate these into your 
teaching within an ABA program and you can develop measurement systems to see if, you know, they're able to follow along during the meditation while you're teaching it. Are they then able to self-monitor and practice independently on their own? And are they able to then um, use the strategies when they need to outside of the context of the learning environment? So you can absolutely design and develop measurement systems to see if your teaching methodologies are effective. And so we'll start with like very short with little kids, you know, like a five minute sitting or even shorter mm-hmm. if we have to, right? And whether we're working on mindful hearing and having a child attend to different sounds in the environment or like what we call the raisin exercise, or that's where you taste and sample a small bite of really healthy food and learn how to be really present with that item. Um, and then expand on their range of mindfulness mm-hmm. practices and slowly build up the endurance, like their ability with, to withstand the, the meditation component as well um, into their instructional programming. Um, and then gradually over time, we go from that co-regulation piece to, you know, being able to self-regulate when they need to self-regulate. Really, it's about, can I stay calm when I need to stay calm when I'm on my own, right? Because so often, more often than not, we have people around us to be with us at least, right? Right. So cool. So cool. I know one thing that um, trauma is a, a bit of a scary topic mm-hmm. for some folks mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of kind of like addressing it. Uh, you know, I mean, I think maybe with younger kids, it, actually, I don't, I, maybe it wouldn't even matter sort of about the age. Uh, but I've definitely run into this sort of situation where, you know, folks feel like, and I, I maybe for good reason, uh, because of their self-assessing competence and whatnot, but folks feel like they don't have the the enough knowledge about trauma. They think trauma belongs in some other realm, belongs to those those specialized people over there with the three PhDs or the person from that trauma-informed center or whatever that is, or the addictions folk core. You know, basically not us um, uh, and, and, and somewhere else. And so they're, they're, they're actually, they're even kind of afraid to kind of go there um, and even assess for that kind of stuff because they feel like maybe once they open that box, um, you know, uh, there's no closing it. And now, you know, there's lots of risks and things. And so uh, w- what do you say to folks to sort of, you know, A, maybe alleviate that fear a bit, and maybe you haven't seen it, um, but B, to sort of so, sort of start kind of developing more of a trauma-informed approach? Um, it, it's totally terrifying to to venture and to learn in this area, for sure. And how do you go about doing it? Take baby steps, seek supervision, um, find people who um, are able to help you learn about what it is um, first, right? Don't ever go in assuming that you can treat the trauma. Like I never treat the trauma with my clients. Mm. That that would be way outside of my scope of ability, right? It was my intention and it is my intention by continuing my education to be able to go and do that mm-hmm. one day, but you're not there to treat the trauma. And I think that that's like a really big thing that needs to be driven home. I'm not there to implement mm. a, te- a, a trauma protocol in order to help with treatment. Um, I'm there to assess for it. Assessment is built into everything that we do, right? And Dr. Coley talks about that as well. It's It's, you learn how to take data, you learn how to pinpoint behavior and you learn how to measure behavior. So that is not outside of our scope of practice. Go and attend learnings and workshops. Um, There's lots available. There's less available directly within the field of behavior analysis. But I mean, if you're willing to enter like contextual behavioral sciences and kind of go into that area, then you can learn there and you can get supervision there um, and take coursework if, if it's an area that you're interested in. So 
it's you're not you're not not allowed to learn right nobody said you're not allowed to learn what people do say is you're not allowed to practice outside of your yeah. area of um, competence right and so if you want to develop a competency in that area then it's totally on you to develop a competency mm -hmm. in that area, whether that means you do another degree, whether that means you um, do trainings and don't actually go and treat trauma, for example, but you just want to know more about trauma. You want to be able to walk in and do an assessment and know, you know, feel more confident in what you're looking for and observing and then bring that to a team of people that you work with. And so, you know, for kids who are identified as having experienced traumas, they typically have a team of people that supports them. It's not just the BCB but there'll be, you know, a psychologist or a counselor involved, there'll be a school team involved, there'll be social workers involved as well. And so you're not working in isolation at that point anymore. You have a very big group of service providers, right? It's super collaborative and very PBS -y in so many ways. So, so yes, and I think that's the, the, a key point there around we don't have to treat the trauma uh, when we don't have to think about having mm -hmm. to do that because that's not kind of our role. I, th I wonder, and 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 I, and I like the idea of sort of the idea of kind of you have, you have to go outside the field. I think I think this is I think this is the piece where with trauma, there, because like you said, there's not much research, and because your paper shows there's not a lot of research on trauma and autism, we've got no choice but to sort of go into you know these other other realms, counseling, social work, or whatever, and yeah. and and kind of and kind of dive in there. And I think I think that sort of speaks to. Uh, a greater point uh, for you know those maybe folks who are still getting certified or or newly certified um, that that competence isn't just going to be you know memorizing the Cooper book or oh, or, or, or some other or some other ABA type text uh, and that you're going to have to kind of go out outside the box. I know I'm going to be interviewing. Um, uh, Hillary McClinton and Nicole Shallow down the road on kind of on sleep and whatnot. And actually, uh, I'm. They told me that they had spent a lot of time sort of diving into, you know, research that had nothing to do with ABA, uh, but that was vitally important for them to kind of gain competence in that area. And so, it's it's the same thing with trauma. And we can just and really it's it's venturing outside the box into kind of other areas. And also, I think this also speaks to you know, a, a piece that we often kind of hear about, and I think we're getting better in areas like this, that, you know, BCBAs and ABA folk, they don't like to sort of play nice in the sandbox with, you know, other professions. But, um, you know, this is a great way to sort of, you know, you know, dispel that myth as well and, and start kind of linking with other professionals. So I think that's really cool. I really think that really quickly we need to get over ourselves yeah. like i i'm so sick and tired after almost 20 years nearing on 20 years of hearing that aba folks and bcbas don't play well in the yeah. sandbox like and, and it's not just you know us talking about it openly the number of times i walk into any kind of school-based meeting daycare-based meeting and nobody wants to know who yeah. i am and that speaks volumes as to how unapproachable we yep. are um as a, as a field right like I, for example, explicitly today tried to stay away from a lot of terminology that was going to turn this into a behavioral jargon fest. And that's just because the terminology comes from other fields. And why do we have to go and change it, right? Why do we have to take a pre-established language, you know, set of set of words that are used to describe certain events and certain phenomena and define it behaviorally? And I think that any time that us as behavior analysts are going to go into kind of stickier areas, whether it's mental health issues, you know, Know, sleep related issues, trauma, I don't think it's appropriate for us to then walk away, you know, change the definition. So it's in behavior speak, basically, and then talk about it that way. Like that makes us 
unapproachable. That makes people hate us as professionals. So I'm pretty tired of yeah. that. So. No, absolutely. And, and for, for a group of folks that's supposed to be super knowledgeable in reinforcement and super knowledgeable in transferring right? properties, you know, uh, we suck when it comes to I mean, doing it with other people. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm just going to go punish your behaviors now. I'm going to tell you that you're wrong and I'm going to piss on yeah. your parade. Like yeah. what? Yeah. Well, but it's because we're in behavior and everything's a behavior. Therefore we can do everything. I mean, and I think that's sort of been a general attitude for a long time and it's, it's just, it's just wrong. So that's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool just to see that we're seeing more and more, um, uh, people specializing in different areas and realizing that the only way they're going to become specialists is if they venture outside of the field. And the only way that they're going to be able to um, teach others is to encourage others to, to venture outside of the field. Uh, so I think this is a good move for us and maybe a good move for our field. So I think that's pretty cool. Totally. and always talked about how ABA needs to go outside of autism, but the only way we're going to get there is by changing ourselves drastically. And I I think that's a good sort of um, segue to possibly having you on again. I know we we really wanted to talk about, definitely having you on again. We really wanted to talk about, I think, you know, the ableism um, and kind of how that is in our society and our field and kind of how that relates to trauma. And I think we wanted to chat more about kind of, you know, how has ABA shifted over time and how hasn't it and, and those sorts of things and kind of how we can just kind of do better as a field and really kind of speak more to ABA reform and, and, and a lot of that stuff, which I think would add several more yeah. credit hours to this podcast, um, uh, which, you know, if folks want to earn them, I guess we could keep talking, but my throat's getting dry. Um, uh, so I think I, maybe we'll just kind of leave it with is, is sort of any sorts of, uh, you know, you know, kind of final thoughts that you'd want to kind of share with listeners, share with folks that are interested in, in kind of getting more into this area. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are lots of resources and I guess how to learn and stuff. Um, so there are lots of different places where you can go and learn and acquire skills and so on. There's, I mean, you and I were chatting the other day, there's a bunch of different Facebook groups out there and that's not somewhere where you're going to go and get uh, educated mm-hmm. in trauma, but at least um, being a part of that community is a good start. Um, so there are, I'm honestly right now, I'm just looking for my list that I have written down. I wrote down a pretty extensive list here, but um, there are different groups on Facebook, like there's trauma-informed schools is a good one. Trauma ACEs from an applied behavior analysis perspective is another one that you could join. Um, There's the listen, learn, do better that you kind of just touched on as you were chatting there. Acceptance and commitment therapy support groups, the contextual behavioral sciences group, and then to actually get, you know, ongoing training um, outside of behavior analysis. Praxis has a lot of um, awesome, 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 awesome CEUs available, even for BCBAs actually hmm. on ACT therapy and applications of ACT. Um, there is the National Institute for the Clinical Application of Behavioral Medicine. They put on a lot of good CEUs. Not that we can collect those CEUs, but if you're a psychologist or a counselor, you can. There is... The central reach CU on mm. ascent and draws of ascent that I think that I would, you know, ties into trauma and ableism and everything mm-hmm. kind of together. 
there's like we talked about uh, Cusp Emergence University that uh, Dr. Kolu has right. developed and she has her blog, but she also has CUs available on there. Um, those are awesome. I, I've been, I've taken some of those and I've been learning so much through those. Cool. Yeah. And then there's a whole pile of people that you can read as well that are outside of ABA, but they're like the gurus and trauma. So if somebody wanted to get some supervision and as it relates to trauma, is that something you'd be into or? I don't feel that I necessarily am capable of doing that quite right. yet. I feel like I have a lot left to learn. Yeah. Um, I could help direct them Good. maybe a little bit where to go and resources and stuff like that. I hope one day in the near future to be able to do cool. that, but I'm not awesome. confident enough in that area yet. Perfect. So. Good. Good. Well, and, and excellent to recognize that. And, uh, and uh, I know you'll get there. Um, so that's super awesome. Well, I want to thank you again for, for being on here. This is super cool. Um, you're my first uh, person to reach out to me about being on the podcast, which was super honored for that. And, and so great to have this chat and learn a lot more about trauma and kind of how, how it affects autism. Looking forward to um, seeing more of your work. Looking forward to that Volkmar book coming out. And, and Oh, me too. And, I can't yeah, wait. That'll be pretty okay. exciting. Um, <laughs> you've shared a ton of resources, which we're going to have all available for folks, including your, your article. Um, and yeah, just thanks again for being here. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic talking to you. And been, it went by so fast. I can't believe it. Yeah. Cool. We're looking at 30 almost. Right. So I'm super honored to have been here today. Thank you. Awesome.